This is a CBC podcast. So, I was at the corner store the other day to grab my go-to snack food. Of course, some sour candies, two bags of Doritos, and a Gatorade. Everything a growing teen will need. And when I went to pay, before the cashier even asked the question, cash or card, I had my phone out, ready to tap with my mobile wallet. I didn't even have to think about it. It was just a total reflex. Because I don't know about you, but I can't even remember the last time I carried cash with me. But I used to love digging around for loose change. In between couch cushions, the washing machine, even under my brother's bed. Are 15-year-olds too young to be nostalgic? Yeah, probably. Anyway, if I'm not using cash as much, what about other people? Are we all going to end up using the super pricey Bitcoin that you always hear about in the news? Or, oh, better yet, we'll have these like little debit cards that are microchipped into our brain and we'll pay with a face scan. Will cash completely disappear one day? And will there be even cooler ways to pay for stuff? Ty Asks Why. I'm Ty, and this is my podcast, Ty Asks Why. There are so many good questions out there that you really want to have answered. How do we fix recycling? Why doesn't everyone love math? How reliable are our memories? Why do we love junk food so much? Are we alone in the universe? And what will money look like in the future? I figured most of my friends were kind of like me when it comes to relying on our phones for, well, pretty much everything. So I was curious to see if they also stopped using cash. But their answers totally surprised me. I get nervous when I use my debit card. I don't know. I probably shouldn't, but I'm worried I'm spending all my money. So I feel like cash, even though it's the same, I feel like it's easier. When I want to buy something big, I guess... I'll use my debit card. But when I was really little, my parents set up a limit, so I can't spend more than $100 on a day. I have to be like, I want to buy a new computer. Dad, you pay for it, and then I'll pay you back. (laughs) So it's like a whole hassle, and it's really annoying. So that's why I usually use cash. I spend money on my debit card, but I like to have cash in my room because it makes me feel like I have more money. So what do you think money will look like in the future? I think, like, crypto and debit are probably the future like they already are pretty common now but i yeah i don't really see like cash having a comeback anytime soon i watched like two hour videos with my dad about what cryptocurrency is and how it works and what is like when you mine bitcoin what does that even mean because it's virtual how does (laughs) i was so confused i still don't understand to this day that's my good friend maylin i'm in the same boat she's in Even though I hear about cryptocurrency all the time, I have absolutely no idea how it works or what it is even. But, I mean, if that could be the money of the future, I gotta see what all the hype's about. It's a very complicated subject and often it takes people a couple days to think about it and go back and think about it some more and then it eventually clicks. 
That's Stephen McKeon. He's an associate professor of finance at the University of Oregon who knows a lot about cryptocurrency. But before getting into all the complicated mind-melding stuff, I think we should start with the basics. And I'm talking like really basic basics. Now, what is money? That is a very deep question, Ty. So we, we think of money as having uh, three purposes. So one is a medium of exchange, right? So let's say that I have some cows and you have some goats and I decide I want some goats. Well, I have to make sure that you also want some cows in order for us to trade. That's called barter. And so by having money, it allows us to trade the goats or the cows in exchange for money instead of for each other. So it, it facilitates trade. The second use of money is called a unit of account. It's a way of keeping track of how much things cost. And then the third way is a, is a store of value. I can take value in whatever form, whether it's cows or goats or gold, and I could put it into money and then hold it there for a while. And then presumably at a later date, convert that money back into something else that I want. I mean, we've definitely come a long way because it's probably quite a bit easier to store a bunch of bills at a bank than having all these goats and cows lying around. <laughs> Stephen says money has always been a way of keeping track of debts, dating back thousands of years, but the physical things that people use as money have changed quite a lot. It was clay tablets, you know, in Mesopotamia thousands of years ago. It was uh, shells that washed up on the beach for some cultures and societies. It's, uh, it's been represented by large stones in the Southeast Pacific on the island of Yap. Yap is a tiny Micronesian island located way out in the Pacific Ocean. And according to local legend, hundreds of years ago, the Yapis canoed far away to a neighboring island where they found limestone washed up on the shore. They had to find a type of stone that didn't exist on their island. Because what you, what you want with money is you don't want anybody and everybody to be able to make more of it. Otherwise, it loses value. And so they found this stone and they carved it into these giant stone disks, brought it back to their island, and then that served as money within their society. Those disks are known as rye stones, and it still blows my mind to think about these villagers hauling these massive stones back home using a canoe. Especially since Google tells me that they were over six feet tall and weighed thousands of pounds. But... How did they actually use these stones as money? I mean, it seems a little bit cumbersome to push these giant boulders around town every time you need to buy something. Not to mention how tiring it would be, too. Let's say that I owned that stone. I didn't have to have it at my house. It could sit out on a path somewhere in my village. But everybody knew that's Steve's stone, right? And then if I wanted to spend it... Um, let's say I, I wanted a new house or something and the, and the person was willing to accept my rye stone, I would just announce, that rye stone is mine. That rye stone now belongs to Ty. And now it, it, the rye stone doesn't move. It still sits on the path, but everybody knows, oh, that's Ty's rye stone now. It was like an oral ledger. It was, it was like just among the villagers. So if I wanted to buy a boat from my neighbor, Phil, all I'd have to say is, hey, Phil, 
I'll give you my rye stone parked down by the river for your boat. And Phil wouldn't have to travel for miles to find it and carve his name in it or anything, because now everyone in the village just knows it's his. And so you didn't have to possess it to own it. And so it had a lot of characteristics like that that are actually quite similar to this very, very modern form of money uh, that we know as Bitcoin. Bitcoin is a type of cryptocurrency, which is digital money that only exists online, kind of like a computer file. There are actually thousands and thousands of cryptocurrencies out there, but Bitcoin is the one we always hear about because it was the world's very first. Bitcoin was uh, invented by um, uh, an individual or individuals named Satoshi Nakamoto. We actually don't know the real world identity of Satoshi. They went under the, the pseudonym Satoshi and they did it by writing a paper. It looked very much like an academic paper. Who would have thought an academic paper could be the basis for a new type of currency? But that's how it all started. So this anonymous paper came out in 2008 and it proposed a kind of virtual cash, one that would be stored in a digital wallet and it would be protected by something called cryptography. Crypto means secret in Greek. So cryptography is pretty much the study of hiding and sending information through codes. So if you think about how do we keep things safe on the internet, say I was to transmit credit card information to Amazon, uh, that all uses encryption. So encryption is used actually throughout society. Uh, it's used all over the internet. It's actually used dating back to a long, long time ago, right? So even pre-computers, pre uh, we would try to encrypt messages to protect the message from other people seeing it. The idea with Bitcoin is that you can make online purchases and easily send money from person to person without having to involve a third party, like a bank or the government, like regular money does. And that's because it runs on technology called the blockchain. A big public ledger that keeps track of every transaction. If you were to log into a bank account and you were going to say how much money is in here, and they say there's, you know, $624, they know that it's $624 because they've been keeping a ledger of all the transactions in and out of that account. The bank maintains that ledger. So the big difference with blockchains is that no independent party maintains the ledger. A whole group of people maintain the ledger together. It's almost as if the rye stone is like Bitcoin's ancient ancestor. In the case of the island of Yap, villagers would talk to each other to verify transactions and prove which person owned which stone. Bitcoin users do the same thing, but using the blockchain. It's all there in the public ledger for everyone to see, and an important piece called a private key. And that's the thing that proves that I own that Bitcoin and that I have the right to transfer it. If I tried to make that transfer without having the right private key, everyone who's maintaining that ledger would know Steve's trying to execute a fraudulent transaction and they would reject it and it wouldn't get added to the ledger. And so that was the big revolution. So the idea is that it's been very hard to store value in digital files historically because as you and I both know, digital files can be copied, right? So if I have a, a JPEG image or a music file or, or whatever, uh, it's pretty easy to, you know, copy and click and paste it. But if you think about Bitcoin, 
What it is, is basically a digital file that can't be copied. Since it can't be copied, now we can assign value to it. Because I know that if I own a Bitcoin, it's mine and I have the right to spend it. And to the extent that other people are willing to accept that Bitcoin for goods and services, uh, then it has value. And so that's, that's, you know, when Bitcoin was created, it didn't have any value. It was kind of like play money on the internet. Um, but then one day somebody said, I'll pay 10,000 Bitcoins for two pizzas. Yeah, you heard that right. 10,000 Bitcoins for two pizzas. So this was back in 2010, when Bitcoin was just over a year old. A guy from Florida named Laszlo Honjetz made history when he ordered two large pizzas from Papa John's and paid with Bitcoin. And all of a sudden, Bitcoin had value because now you could actually exchange Bitcoin. And then over time, people began to accept less and less Bitcoin for any particular good. And so that means the value was rising. And so when Bitcoin was invented, it was worth, uh, you know, conceptually zero. And then it was worth fractions of a penny. And today it's worth about $30,000 per Bitcoin. The price of Bitcoin has actually more than doubled since I spoke to Steve. I've heard the story of the guy that like pays for the pizzas and it just, I feel so bad for them. Like it's worth like $30,000 and they gave 10,000 of them. That's right. It was a really monumental transaction, right? Because it took something uh, that had not previously been used for in exchange for a good. And, and it, it, it represented that this thing could be used for exchange. And so, Yes, like I guess in retrospect, of course, that's millions and millions of dollars now. That's an absurd amount to pay for pizza. But remember that at the time, it was worth nothing. I mean, at the end of the day, the guy pretty much got two free pizzas, right? Uh, that's right, for something that previously was uh, without value. Now, of course, we know what's happened with Bitcoin since then, and it's become enormously valuable. And so now it looks like a very, very expensive uh, couple of pizzas. Okay, I think I'm starting to get this whole Bitcoin thing. It's kind of crazy to think about how humans went from bartering farm animals to sending files on the internet. Stephen says that's because money can really be anything. The concept of what is money really is much more malleable than most people think. What is money is whatever we as a society decide is money. And so we could decide that a certain type of picture is going to represent money or a certain type of file is going to represent money. Or, you know, we've collectively decided that that gold, which if you think about what is gold, gold is basically a shiny rock, right? There's no reason that gold should be worth thousands of dollars per ounce, except that we as a society have all agreed we're going to assign that type of value to gold. That makes a lot of sense especially when you think about the story of the rye stone. These villagers all gathered together, decided these huge stone discs were going to be worth something, and that was all it took for it to become their local currency. And there were people who physically made those stones and hauled each one all the way back to their village. But Bitcoin is online money, 
So who's making it and how does it get manufactured? The thing with Bitcoin is to remember it has nothing physical. It's completely digital. This is Gina Peters. She's an assistant instructional professor at the University of Chicago who studies how cryptocurrency is used around the world. Think about if I, if you and I were using physical cash, right? If I give you $1 and then I give you a second dollar, if you look inside your wallet, assume you began with nothing, you now have $2. How do you duplicate that if you don't have any physical cash? I could say I have $10 or I could say I have $10,000. So everyone in the system has, is going to actually pay attention and keep track of my wallet balances. And that's really what miners do. Is they keep track of, okay, this transaction can happen. This con transaction cannot happen. Miners? That makes me think of those guys with headlamps working away in a dusty cave. But Gina says they're actually more like accountants and their tools are computers, not pickaxes. They're the ones who maintain the blockchain, the shared ledger Stephen talked about. They essentially have to solve a super complicated equation. The equation is so complicated, it's actually faster just to guess and verify that you have the right number. So listen up. Here's how I understand it. Anytime you send a Bitcoin to someone, a swarm of these digital miners rush to confirm your transaction, add it to the blockchain in batches or what they call blocks. It takes roughly 10 minutes to mine one block. What that means is that there's this intense competition to see which data miner can solve this really complicated math equation the fastest because the winner gets a reward, 6.25 Bitcoins. What that does is it gives everyone an incentive to get more and more powerful computers so they can do more and more guesses. So the more powerful your computer becomes, the more complicated the equation becomes, the more numbers you have to guess, essentially. That means that there's this increasing demand on computational power as more and more people try to guess. Unfortunately, it is very energy intensive because of the way the technology is designed. I've read about these warehouses packed with these powerful computers that Gina's talking about. Apparently, they eat up more energy than entire countries like Norway or Switzerland do in a year. Iran even temporarily banned crypto mining after experiencing citywide blackouts. But Gina says it's not just the mining that countries have a problem with. Remember how crypto is decentralized, which means it's meant to cut out the middleman like banks and governments? Well, some countries haven't been too happy about that. Some of them have tried banning cryptos, but with Bitcoin, there is no center. How do I ban Bitcoin? You can't because you'd have to ban the miners. But if you have miners and they're sitting in Antarctica and you're sitting in your own country, you can't ban, you can't stop what those miners are doing. So the best thing you can do is try to ban your individual citizens from opening up that account. But they don't have to register with you in order to say that they're going to use this coin. The other thing is the degree of anonymity you can get from a cryptocurrency. You can send money between two people, you know, person A, person B, and all I can see on Bitcoin is person A send money to person B, but I don't know the names of person A and person B. Sometimes people can use that anonymity to send money if they might otherwise be restricted. 
Now, is it good or is it bad they can do that? It depends on why they are restricted. So, for example, uh, terrorist groups can absolutely use it, as can people who have ransomware concerns, but so can people in oppressive regimes or under oppressive governments. Think of most of the internet, right? People are anonymous on the internet. That can be good or that can be bad. Hmm. I can see why some governments wouldn't be cool with their citizens using something they don't have control over. But even though some of these governments might not be too jazzed about Bitcoin itself, they've been paying very close attention to the technology that it's using, and it's even inspired some of them to think about creating their own digital cash. Gina says this is because there's been a big shift in the way people are spending their money. There is something, it's, it's called the death of cash. It, it's, it's a symptom we're seeing right now, and it's, it's got this very ominous name, the death of cash. But we're seeing people use less and less physical cash as part of their transactions. There's more and more mobile or digital payments happening anyway. There are over 80 countries around the world that are working on their own central bank digital currencies, or CBDCs, right now. Think of it like an online version of the legal tender you already use in your country. So, like a digital loonie in Canada, digital yuan in China, or a digital rupee in India that would be stored in a mobile wallet. Gina says most countries are still in the early stages of development, but the Bahamas were the first to successfully launch their own digital currency called the sand dollar. And they did it for a really interesting reason. They've been working on this idea since the 90s. You know, so Bahamas is a sequence of islands and they have a lot of, of um, bad weather seasons. So if you're carrying around money, right, that money is going to get soaked, it's going to be um, destroyed, it's going to get lost. So there's been a long push for them to try and bring in an alternative form of cash that doesn't, it's not as susceptible to this. Hmm. I mean, you would never think that of all the things, weather would be the reason why they try to push to make CBDCs. And I, I guess I need to also appreciate the fact that Canadian bills are actually all plastic, so you can throw them in a bathtub if you need. And I mean, digital money can't get wet. Ah, but now here's the fun part, and this is um, where I think the Bahamas spend a lot of time. How do you allow digital currencies to continue working if, for example, a hurricane hits and takes out the electricity and the internet? That's actually a big discussion that you need to have when you're designing these CBDCs. Wow. Who knew that nature's wrath would be something to worry about with digital money? In that case, here's hoping that the digital loony will be able to sustain sub-zero temperatures. So, I get why the Bahamas had to invent the sand dollar. It was pretty much out of necessity. I mean, if it was me, I would be fed up with using soggy, crumbling bills all the time too. But why are all these other countries so keen on making their own digital money? We've seen an explosion of access to internet. Um, we've seen an explosion of ac access to, to smartphones. And so the value of a CBDC is saying, you know, we are becoming a more digital world. It means that we should be kind of keeping our payments and our, our money up to date with that. Nick Hill Rigovira is a fellow at the Atlantic Council, a DC-based think tank that's been tracking the rise of digital currencies from crypto to CBDCs. Remember, CBDCs stand for Central Bank Digital Currencies. 
He says central banks are exploring digital cash for lots of different reasons, like making it easier and quicker to send money overseas and saving costs on printing physical cash. But they're also interested in using it to tackle a huge global problem. So over 2 billion people don't have access or are essentially excluded from the banking system. And there's a number of reasons for that. The biggest one is actually simply the fact that people don't have enough money that justifies having a bank account. Another one is they live in regions where there's actually not strong banking infrastructure or banks aren't easily accessible. So places like that might be like very rural parts of the world, conflict regions, war-torn regions, things like that. Another reason is, you know, normally to have a bank account, you need to have some form of ID. And a number of people don't have an ID, especially kind of thinking about um, migrants and refugees. Another major reason is simply that people don't have kind of enough expertise and understanding of like, what is a purpose of a bank account? If you're someone who doesn't have a lot of money, it may also just not make sense because you're like, what's the point of using a bank? It just sounds very complex. I have to deal with someone else rather than just keeping the money uh, in my pocket or under my bed. And the last reason is banks have been historically like very exclusionary. For example, in the United States, we have a history of banks not allowing uh, minorities, particularly black communities from being able to actually use them. Wow, that's unfortunate. And the number 2 billion is shockingly high. That is a quarter of our population. Yeah, it's staggering. And so it's only it's 2 billion people who don't have access to a bank account, but there's billions more people who don't have access to additional financial uh, tools, right? Like, can I take a loan? Um, Can I send money to my family in another part of the country or another part of the world? These are additional financial tools that billions of more people don't even have access to those things either, which some of these things we might just take for granted. So what will happen to the people who might not have phones or reliable internet? Yeah, this really hits on this question around financial exclusion. CBDC is digital, right? Um, There's no getting around that fact. And so people without internet, people without um, potentially without a smartphone may not be able to access it. And I think that is going to be the critical challenge here. And you can't just issue a digital currency and expect everyone to be able to get it. You need the proper infrastructure, the the actual underlying conditions that allow for people to have digital money in the first place. And if we don't do that, if we don't see that happen, then digital currency actually won't solve anything. It will just make things probably worse. It's hard to envision moving towards this digital currency future when a quarter of the world's population doesn't even have a bank account. Like, what's the point of racing ahead with all this technology if so many people might be left behind? I think that's exactly what we have to be thinking about is making sure that everyone can use it, not just that some people can. Um, If only some people can, it completely undermines and doesn't serve the purpose of what we really can do to make the world a better place. If all these countries are trying to make digital money, what does that mean for the cash we already have? I mean, would it be discontinued and then people would just have a bunch of useless pieces of paper with old dead guys on them? <laughs> this is this is a big question. Um, right now, I think most central banks said, you know, like, we're not going to get rid of cash completely. Um, I think what we'll envision first is kind of a case where you have both kind of your paper money and then a digital currency. And then down the line, maybe we'll switch completely to a fully digital form of currency rather than just paper. But in addition to that, I think we'll also have a lot of other things that are based on cryptocurrency that are decentralized. 
And so instead of being managed by a central company, it's a world of cryptocurrency where everyone else has ownership into that system. And that system is managed by a computer protocol. I like that idea, but we got to just hope that the computers don't revolt and kind of make us all broke, right? I mean, I always think of it, there'll be like a face scanner in the corner of the store. I'll just be like, oh, it's it's Ty. He keeps, he keeps coming back. He has single-handedly boosted our Doritos sales. And it's like, let me just, and they deduct a few dollars off my bank account. Yeah, I'm a little terrified of that happening. That sounds a little scary to me, but um, there's definitely things that will be helpful in that world. <laughs> so... I guess we'll still have cash for the foreseeable future, which honestly might be a good thing because my friends had some logistical concerns. For the whole world, they'd have to get rid of a lot of cash registers and they'd have to buy a lot more debit machines. I don't know. I feel like it would be a little bit of a hassle. They're going to have to rewrite all those uh, math textbooks where it's like Matthew has 25 quarters. Yeah, I guess those are valid concerns. And to be honest, I'm not totally ready for cash to go anywhere. I do still love finding random $5 bills in my jeans, and I need to be able to spend it. So even if my face scanner idea doesn't take off anytime soon, it's still awesome to know that there are lots of people working on all the cool ways we might pay for stuff in the future. And let's face it, at the end of the day, literally anything can be used as money. Even a giant rock. Ty asked why. Thanks so much for listening. I'm Ty Poole. This show is produced by Eunice Kim, Rachel Levy-McLaughlin, and Judy D. Gu. This podcast was created by Veronica Simmons. Graham McDonald is our sound designer, and the theme music is by Johnny Spence. Sound engineer is my father, Min Nguyen, and our location manager is my mom, Nikki Poole. Special thanks to Austin Pomeroy and my friends Piper, Finn, Caden, and Maylen. Today, my guests were Stephen McKeon, Gina Peters, and Nick Hill Riguvira. SK Robert is our digital producer. Our senior producer is Tina Verma, and the director of CBC Podcasts is Arup Narani. If you liked this episode, I'd love to hear from you. Please consider taking some time to rate and review Ty Asks Why on your favorite podcast app. It makes a big difference in helping others find the show. Till next time, I'm Ty. Keep asking why. For more CBC podcasts, go to cbc.ca/podcasts.